thank you, uh, music team. Uh, if you are, uh, have children that are kindergarten to third grade that are going down to children's church, they can dismiss out the back uh, with Miss uh, Melody. Uh, again, thank you to all of you that uh, participated in the angel tree and brought gifts for that. That's uh, such a special thing because those gifts all go to people in our community, which is awesome and helps those families in need. Uh, thanks to Casey and Melody for uh, organizing that. But if you haven't been with us recently, we are in the midst of our Christmas Advent series. And in this series, we are looking back at a prophecy that God gave in the book of Isaiah some 700 years before Jesus was born. And in this prophecy, God laid out five names of who the Messiah would be called and five names that spoke of the character of who Jesus would be. In Isaiah 9, 6, he records a prophecy. He says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 7, the prophet proclaimed that the Messiah would be called Emmanuel, or God, with us. And we look at these names, not just because they are interesting names, but because they are prophetic descriptions of who Jesus would be during his time here on earth. And they're prophetic descriptions of who Jesus is today. And this is important to us because if we are a follower of Jesus, and these descriptions describe who Jesus is as our Lord, how he desires for us to relate with him, and they describe why he is trustworthy with everything in our life. So during week one, we looked at Jesus as our wonderful counselor. And the name wonderful counselor, it comes from two Hebrew words. The words were Pele and Yowitz. And the word uh, wonderful means more wonderful than words can describe. And then the word for counselor, Yowitz, doesn't mean counselor like we think of today. It's not just a counselor that listens and sympathizes with us. But this is a counselor that advises and instructs from a place of authority. Jesus is the mighty God. He is creator of the universe. He has conquered death. He offers eternal life. And it's from that place of authority that Jesus listens and advises us in our lives. He hears our struggles. He sympathizes with our struggles. And then he instructs and advises from that place of authority. Last week, we looked at Jesus as mighty God and how because Jesus is mighty, he can be trusted as our wonderful counselor. He can be trusted with every circumstance and difficulty and challenge I encounter in this life. We specifically looked at the reality that Jesus is divine. He is God. He can be, and because of that, he can be trusted. We looked at how he is mighty over creation. He is the creator. How he is mighty over the enemy. He is mighty over Satan. He is mighty to save. Because of that, he is mighty over all of my circumstances. Jesus is greater than we can comprehend. He is more powerful than we understand. He is the mighty God and he is good. And he can be trusted with our lives. So those are the first two names we looked at. If you missed those and you're interested, you can go back and listen on our website or on uh, YouTube. Uh, but those are the first two names. Jesus is, an, uh, is a wonderful counselor. He is a mighty God. And today we see he is our everlasting father. And this one everlasting father, in many ways, I, I think we, uh, the way we relate to this name in the most personal way of the names, right? We all have a biological father, and we all have emotions and feelings that surround this relationship. And we all walk into this sermon on Jesus as our everlasting father with some sort of baggage to overcome. But a couple of months ago, we had a, a sermon series on our relationship with God as our father. And in that, we looked at how it is that we relate with God as a child. Today, we're not going to look at it from a different angle and look at Jesus and how he is the ultimate fulfillment of this role of father. And again, we all have history. We all have baggage. We all have expectations of what it means to be a father. 
And today we're going to see how Jesus is the perfect and ultimate fulfillment of that role. I know for me, as I think of the role of father, I have very positive thoughts and memories, positive feelings and emotions because I had a great dad, right? And I hope for you, you have that same story, but I know that's not always the case. And even for those of us that grew up with great dads, dads that we love and that were present and, and were a great influence in our lives, we, we still have weird, sometimes distorted connotations of the word father. I mean, you just think about every, our culture right now, every TV show, every movie, the father is either absent or the butt of the joke or the cause of the problem, it seems. And so even those that have good memories of dad, we have been influenced in, by this cultural narrative. And for others of us, the cultural narrative is very real in our lives. Thoughts of an everlasting father bring up memories of a dad that was absent from our lives, either emotionally or physically. For some, it brings up uh, notions of abandonment, of abuse, or other troubling realities. And so when you hear that Jesus is supposed to be your everlasting father, instead of that name drawing you into him, it, it causes you to take a step back away. While researching and preparing for this sermon, I ran into an article on the website Gospel Coalition by Jonathan Edwards called, Is God the Father Like My Father? And he writes in that, I was 25 years old before I could say the word father while praying. The word was foreign to me. It didn't roll off my tongue the way it did for many of my Christian friends. It felt like a word from a foreign language. In one regard, he said it meant nothing. It was just gibberish in my mind. But in another, it meant a world of things. Amid the cultural barriers, it still struck a nerve because while it meant nothing, it meant everything. The word father meant broken things, scary things, hurtful things. How was I supposed to use a word, a word that for me brought to mind everything a parent shouldn't be? When I was in a conversation with a God who I've been told was everything my dad wasn't. How was I supposed to call God by a name I hadn't used for most of my life? A name that didn't mean to me what I knew the Bible insisted God is. And for some of us here today, we can relate with Jonathan and the struggle it is to call Jesus our everlasting father. And if that's you, my, my heart goes out to you. We live in a fallen and sin-filled world. And many of you have felt the pain of that. And so today, without minimizing the hurt, I hope in this message to point out some ways that Jesus fulfills the role of our everlasting father and see why Isaiah used this relationship to describe Jesus. I hope to show how Jesus is greater than some of the father wounds we've experienced in our lives. And as we jump into the sermon, I just want to recognize two books that I lean heavily on uh, for this, and we're going to use uh, quotes and terminology from it. The first one is called Families and Faith by Vern Bingston, and the second one is called The Father Factory by Stephen Poulter. But before we jump in, let's read uh, the passage, the prophecy, uh, from its context. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this prophecy that you gave to Isaiah some 700 years before Jesus was born. God, we thank you that you sent Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the one that would save us from our sins. And God, we thank you that Jesus doesn't just come and, and save us from our sins, but he loves us and he cares for us. He is present and compassionate in our lives. He loves us as a great father loves their child. 
And so, God, I pray today, Lord, as we study this passage, as we study who you are, Lord, that you would reveal to us how you are the perfect Father, that you would reveal to us how deeply you love and care for us, that you would reveal to us just our need for you, Lord, and that we would run to you as our Father. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for how you love us and care for us. And we thank you for Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, so just one quick note. We talked a little bit about the Trinity last week. And I think sometimes we read this and we see Jesus called the everlasting Father. And that seems a little weird because the Bible teaches that Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. He, he is called God's Son. And yet here the Son is referred to as the Father. All right, that doesn't mean that they switch places in the Trinity, but that Jesus in his relationship to us relates to us like a good father, like the father we always long for. And the first thing we're going to see as we look at Jesus uh, as our everlasting father is that Jesus is everlastingly present. Jesus is present. One of the common hurts that many of us have experienced from our fathers is a father that was just absent from our life. The most recent statistic I looked up this week, it said somewhere between 25 and 40% of children grow up without a father in their life. If that's you, when you hear that Jesus is your everlasting father, you either have nothing to relate to that or you think of a father that was never there for you, that was simply absent from your life. And at that point, you are at best indifferent to an everlasting father. Last Saturday, Caveman and I, we watched uh, the U.S. take on the Netherlands in the World Cup. And at one of, or the top goal scorer for the Netherlands, he goes by his first name, Memphis. And he refuses to put his last name, Depay, on the back of his jersey and instead leaves Memphis. And he does that because he had a father that left him when he was young and he doesn't want to honor his dad who abandoned him in any way. And the tragedy of absent fathers is, according to Poulter, kids like Memphis often interpret the absence of their father as a personal rejection. They think they weren't important enough, good enough to keep him around. Counselors say this absent father manifests itself in children as a background sadness or soundtrack that the child, the child lives with that he doesn't quite understand. It's a fear of aloneness or a nagging suspicion in their life that every good thing is eventually going to go away. For boys, Poulter says this sadness often evidences itself in the form of anger. For many fatherless boys, in the absence of a father figure who could show them what real masculinity was, they turned to some other way to try and prove their strength. Whether it be rebellion or athletics or sexual prowess, sometimes even violence and gang activity. This is the masculinity they see glorified in culture and movies. And so they chase after it because they never had a dad in their life to show them what it was to be a man. They never had a father that got on the ground with them as toddlers and wrestled with them and showed them what strength under control looked like, what strength harnessed to protect and blessed was. And so they only learned to express their strength through domination of others. To the other extreme, some grow up to be overachievers, desperately seeking to be everything that their dads weren't and to receive the acceptance and praise from others they never got from their absent father. Counselors say girls with absentee fathers, they manifest in similar ways. Sometimes they struggle to develop respect for themselves or confidence in their careers. Sometimes in the absence of a father's love, they crave the attention and care from a man so deeply they will do whatever it takes to get it. And we know that can lead to bad decisions and tragedy in life. And for many, an absent father is a reality in life. 
It's something that, that they have spent a lifetime trying to overcome. It might be something you've spent a lifetime trying to overcome. But the good news is from the Bible is that Jesus is not an absent father. In fact, Jesus is an everlasting father that loves you, that cares for you, and that is everlastingly present. He says to us in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. He says, I will never ever leave you or forsake you. He is ever present and he is there for you. Jesus won't leave you when you are angry with him. He won't leave you when you question him. He won't leave you when you sin. He won't leave you when you walk away. He won't leave you when you spurn him. In fact, the gospel, the Bible tells us that he loves you so much that even when you are sinful, even when you had walked away from him, even when you were far off, he died for you on the cross. He's ever present and he loves you so much he gave his life for you. Jesus will never walk out on you. Instead, the Bible says he, he has pursued you. He loves you. He paid the price for your sins and he calls to you, follow me. Right, in this life, we will be abandoned by people. But Jesus will never abandon us. Or even the greatest of dads will succumb to the, the, to the tragedy that is death in this life, and they will leave us. But Jesus will never leave us. He will never forsake us, and he will always pursue and be present with us. That's why I love the word that, that Isaiah adds here, everlasting. Jesus is the everlasting father. He never disappoints. He never forsakes. He never leaves. He will never die. He is the father our heart has always craved. Jesus is everlastingly present if you are his. If you've never trusted Jesus with your life, he is pursuing you. He has died on the cross for you, and he invites you to begin a relationship and follow him. Jesus is everlastingly present. He loves you, and he cares for you. The next thing we see is that Jesus is everlastingly compassionate. Psalm 103.8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and he is abounding in love. Don't you love that? The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and he is abounding in love. When we view Jesus through the lens of our earthly father, we might miss this. But the Bible is clear that Jesus is compassionate. He is slow to anger and he abounds in love for you. That's who our everlasting father in Jesus is. But as we talked about with, with ever-present, sometimes we miss that because we have an earthly dad that, that was not everlastingly compassionate. He didn't abound in love for us. Poulter, in his book, he contrasts this version of the everlasting compassionate nature of Jesus with, the, with what he calls the time bomb dad, who was quick to anger and slow to affection. And if we had a dad like this, it, it makes it very difficult to understand and grasp that Jesus is compassionate, loving, and full of grace for us. He says the time bomb dad is a dad that if they had a bad day at work, even the slightest imperfection or disruption at home could cause them to explode in anger. He says for some it was magnified by drug or alcohol abuse. And for those that grew up in that kind of home with that kind of dad, they learned not to love their dad, but to stay clear of them. He says the negative ramifications from this are manifold. An incredible number of anxiety disorders have their beginnings in this style of fathering. He says, for example, kids who grew up like this can become control freaks in response because they knew, you see, when their dads exploded, their lives crashed. And so they want to control everything to keep that from happening again. 
psychologists compare this uh, kind of uh, growing up in this kind of home to PTSD. Poulter says it's, it, it compares it to the U.S.'s response after Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Our response was we put in a radar system that was so sophisticated that it could detect any movement on the Pacific Ocean within 5,000 miles of Pearl Harbor. And that's the way kids grow up, he says, always on the lookout for where the next blow up could happen and scared to not be fully in control. But that's not who our Heavenly Father is. Our Heavenly Father is compassionate, slow to anger, and His grace abounds. Literally, in Hebrew, this word slow to anger, it reads long of nostrils. Right? That's quite a Hebrew me metaphor. But it's a great one when you think about it, because what happens when you get angry? Right? Your nostrils flare. If you're quick-tempered, you're flaring your nostrils. It gets going right away. And then you're like that bull raring to charge. But what do you do if you're trying to control your anger? Right? You close your mouth and you breathe deeply through your nose slowly. The next verse in Psalm 103 reads, He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. Right? Jesus tells us he came not to condemn the world, but he came to save the world. He is not quick to anger, but he is the extreme opposite. God sends Jesus as a baby to the world because he is overwhelmed with compassion and love for us, the world. And he sends Jesus as the perfect offering to give up his life so that we may be in relationship with him. He loves us more than we can comprehend. He loves you more than you can comprehend. He is an everlasting father that is full of compassion for you. Scott Rogers in a sermon on this passage, he said this. He says, if there's one thing you get today, get this. Please get this. Your everlasting father, he is compassionate for you. He does care for you. And his plans for you are to give you hope and to give you a future and to prosper you. Jesus is not angry with you. He is satisfied with you and he loves you and he cares about you. Jesus is everlastingly present. He is everlastingly compassionate and he abounds in love for you. And then lastly, Jesus treasures and loves you as his child. If you're a parent, think about your children. Is there anything that makes you more proud than your children? Right, my children can do the routine, and it fills my heart with pride because they are my child. Right, this week on Thursday, we went to Monroe, Monroe Elementary School's Christmas performance at the high school. Right, they did a great job, but NBC wasn't there to record their performance and broadcast it to the world. But you can bet I was there with my phone out recording it because my child was up there singing. Right, not because it was overly exceptional, but because it was my kids. Next week, our stage will be filled with children singing their hearts out, and seats will be filled with parents because they are so proud of their child. Because they're the greatest kids' choir ever? No. But because they are their kids, and they are proud of them. The Bible says that's how Jesus feels for you and I as his children. He treasures us. He loves us. He takes pride in us because we are his. Not because of anything special we have done, but because we are his child and his follower. But again, I think this one can be hard for us to believe. Whether it be the whispers of Satan that God couldn't really love us, or because of some other authority figure in our life that we always long to hear say the words, I love you and I am proud of you, but we never heard it. And because of that, we struggle to believe that Jesus could love us. 
And we struggle to live in the grace of his forgiveness if we have surrendered our life and followed him. And although it's a struggle to live in that reality and accept that and walk in the freedom and forgiveness and grace Jesus offers, that is the only way we can live the Christian life he has called us to live. That's why this is such an important one. Our everlasting Father's love and joy and his deep uh, pride and, and love of us is contrasted with who Poulter calls the emotionally absent Father or the never satisfied Father. And for those of us that had a father like this, they rarely heard their dad say the words, I love you or I'm proud of you. It became something they longed to hear from their dad or from any other authority figure in their life. And because of that, they, that was lacking. They spent their life trying to make that person proud only to be let down time and time again. The emotionally distant dad, as Poulter describes, it was the, it was the norm. He says over 50% of households from 1945 to 1980 had this kind of father. And so for many of you, this might be the home you grew up in. One book I was reading said there are three things that every child needs to hear from their dad. They need to hear, I love you, I'm proud of you, and you are really good at fill in the blank. But for some of us, we never heard those words. And it has left us with an insatiable desire to prove ourselves so that we could hear someone say, I love you and I am proud of you. Bo Jackson, who many would argue is the greatest athlete to ever live. He played professional football and baseball and made the all-star game in both. He once said, my father has never seen me play a football or baseball game. Can you imagine that? Here I am, Bo Jackson one of the so-called premier athletes in our country, and I'm sitting in the locker room and envying every other teammate whose dad would come in and talk with them and have a drink or take them to dinner after the game. But I've never experienced that. When we grow up in this kind of a home, we have an insatiable desire to prove ourselves to everyone. And there is no way that we can sit back and rest in the love and the grace of Jesus, our everlasting Father. We seek to prove or earn our forgiveness. But the gospel tells us that our forgiveness, our salvation, it's not about us. It's about Jesus and what he's already done on the cross on our behalf. It's only through grace that we can be forgiven and inherit eternal life. Poulter says that kids who grow up in that environment like this, they not only fail to develop healthy relationships with their fathers, but they often struggle to develop healthy relationships with others because they have never learned to open up emotionally with others. Not their spouses, not their kids. Because of that, they don't have close friends. He says when they go through pain, they tend to go through it alone. They may be extroverts and have lots of acquaintances, but they don't really have any deep friends who they depend on. He goes on to say that emotionally distant dads usually have no idea the damage that they are doing and the damage their emotional distance is causing their children. They think to themselves, I'm doing my job, I'm providing for my family, I'm putting food on the table. He says they are clueless that part of being a good provider includes emotional nurturing and active involvement. And even today, many Christian men can fall into this trap because they feel like they are good dads they provide food and shelter for their family. I love what Pastor J.D. Greer said about that proposition. He said, really, is that going to be the standard? He said, I mean possums give their offspring food and shelter. Is that the bar we want for godly fatherhood? Now, this isn't a parenting sermon, but uh, dads, for the sake of your children and their faith, for their emotional stability, be emotionally invested and present in their lives. Tell them that you love them and that you are proud of them. Sociologist Vern Bingston says in his book 
that the, uh, that the child's relationship with the father is the single most important factor in whether the child adopts the faith of their parents. But the emotionally distant and absent father is not who Jesus is. Greer says like this, your heavenly father isn't like that. The father is so emotionally connected to you. He so loves you that according to Jesus' parable, the prodigal son, he literally could not be happy while you were away. Every day the prodigal son was gone, the father stood at the door and looked and waited for him to come home. He says the father, I'm sure, was a busy man with lots of things to attend to, but he literally could not be happy when his boy was wandering and hurting. And when his son starts to come home, he can't help himself, but he lifts his robe and he springs to action and he runs to embrace his son. John Piper says, with every other parable Jesus taught, he ends by giving his hearers something to do. He says, go and do likewise. But when he tells the parable of the prodigal son, he gives no action step. But instead, we're just to stop and worship and rest in the love of our father. John 1.3.1 says, behold what manner of love the father has bestowed on us. Our Heavenly Father isn't emotionally distant, but He's emotionally connected with His children, and He loves them, and He treasures them as His own. This goes along the line of the emotionally distant Father, but some grew up with what Poulter called the never-satisfied Father. This was the dad who, no matter what you did, never seemed to be proud of you. Scott Rogers, in his sermon on this, he shared the story of his wife. He says, my wife's dad was not unkind or abusive. He always provided for her, but she never heard the words, I am proud of you. And she always craved that. She was the first person in her family to ever go to college. And not only did she go to college, but she earned a 4.0 and every academic honor you can imagine. She said as her graduation approached, there was one thing she was dreaming about. She wasn't dreaming of walking across the stage and everyone cheering for her and celebrating her. But she said, I was dreaming about walking down from the stage, my dad pushing through the crowd, and then finally in front of everyone saying to her, I am so proud of you and I love you. That's what she dreamt of. And the moment came and it was just like in her dream, she says. Her dad was pushing through the crowd to get to her and she thought to herself, this is it. This is the moment. He's going to say he loves me and he's so proud of me. And he got to the stage and he said to her, Daughter, it's getting late. It's a long drive home, so we better get going. He says his wife was crushed. And years later, she still tells that story and has affected how she approaches her job and her own family and how she relates to her friends. And for kids who grew up in this kind of home, proving themselves to others becomes the theme of their lives. And understandably, when we grow up in this home, we carry that perspective into our relationship with God. And that's you. Whatever you do, you have this nagging doubt in your head. Have I done enough? And we think to ourselves, I bet God would be happier with me if I was a better Christian, if I were a better witness, if I was a better spouse. We compare ourselves to others and we say, if I were like him or her, I bet God would love me more. I bet then God would be happy with me. But the Bible tells us our everlasting father could not be more different. It says he treasures us and he loves us as his precious child. Isaiah 43 says that we are God's children and we are precious to God. Precious to God. We looked at it last week, but Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you and he is mighty to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. 
He will, be, he will be quiet in his love, and he will delight in you with singing. Our everlasting father rejoices over his children. He quiets them in times of difficulty with his love, and he delights. He takes joy in you to the point that he sings over you. Isn't that a crazy picture? The God of the universe takes so much delight in me and you, his children, that he sings over us. That's your everlasting father. He's proud of you. He loves you, and he takes delight in you. King David in Psalm 139 revels in the love of his father. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and you've known me. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written every one of my days before I was formed. When as yet there was none of them. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit, Father? Or where could I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. And the truth is, the Bible says we, we did sin. We did make our bed in hell. And God ran into hell for us. He stood in the way of the judgment we deserve. He died the death we deserve. And he conquered hell with his life. David continues, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Your everlasting Father loves you. He is present. He is compassionate. He treasures you. He delights in you. He cares for you. So today, do you ache to be special to someone? The Bible says you are special to the God of the universe. Do you yearn to matter to someone? The Bible says you matter to Jesus, to the God of the universe, so much that he gave his life for you. Do you know how much God thinks about you? He knew you in the womb, David says, before anyone else even knew about you. He laid out a plan for you, for your life, and planned to take care of you and to be your everlasting father. Do you understand how valuable you are to him? The gospel is a testament to your value. David says, even if I made my bed in hell, he wouldn't quit thinking about me. Jesus gave his life because you're so valuable to him. His love is deeper, greater, and better than any love you failed to get from your father. That doesn't mitigate the hurt because the hurt is real. The hurt isn't fair and it's devastating. But Jesus' love for you is just as real as the hurt. The Bible says he loves you and he's proud of you. He loves you as a perfect, everlasting father. He gave his life for you. He forgives you, and he says, come and follow me. Is there any wonder David said, such knowledge is too high and too wonderful and too great for me? It doesn't make sense that God would love us in this manner, but the Bible says he does. He loves us as the perfect, everlasting father. Jonathan Edwards, who we quoted earlier, writes, an earthly dad is supposed to be like training wheels teaching you about the heavenly father. He says, I had some really bad training wheels. They were terrible, but now I know the real father. And that, and that was the point the whole time, which gives me the ability to cope with all the ways my earthly father failed me. Louis Giglio, this week on Monday, he tweeted out, God is not the reflection of your earthly father. Instead, he is everything you wanted your earthly father to be and more. So as we conclude, and Melinda, she's going to come and play, but... 
As we conclude, don't view your everlasting heavenly father through the lens of your earthly father. But instead, view your earthly father through the lens of your everlasting father. Jesus, our everlasting father, is everlastingly present. He is with us. He is with you. He is everlastingly compassionate. He loves you. And he treasures and is proud of you as his precious child. Jesus came at Christmas as our wonderful counselor, able to sympathize with our struggles and advise from a position of authority. He came as a mighty God, mighty over creation, mighty over evil, mighty over our circumstances, and mighty to save. And he comes as our everlasting father, always present and always loving us as his child. So this Christmas, we don't just celebrate the birth of a baby, but we celebrate Jesus who came to earth, who lived a sinless life, who died on the cross and rose victorious over death. He is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. And so as Melinda plays, the first question is, have you trusted him with your life, with your future, with your eternity? Have you experienced his love as father? Have you experienced his forgiveness of your sins? If that's you and you're not sure or, or, or you know that you haven't, would you consider that today? Would you consider laying down your life saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. And I want to experience your love, your grace. I want to be your child. The Bible says you can do that in your seat. You can just pray and surrender your life. You can come talk with me. I'd love to share with you what that means. Maybe you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, but as we walk through this, you have experienced some of those hurts and pains. And you need to turn those areas over to him and, and put your faith in an everlasting father that is present, that is compassionate, that loves and treasures you. Would you walk with your everlasting father? Would you surrender those hurts and pains to him in these next few minutes? And would you experience and embrace his love and grace? I'm going to pray for us, and then after I pray, Melinda's just going to play for a couple minutes. As she plays, I'd ask you to bow your head and just to uh, consider who Jesus is as your everlasting Father. Then I'll come back and pray for us, and we'll close out. Dear Lord, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that you don't love us from a distance. We don't thank you that you saved us and just said good luck in life. But we thank you that you are an everlasting Father. That no matter what we are going through or no matter what we have been through, we can know that you are present and you are with us in our lives if we are a follower of you. That no matter what we've gone through or are going through, we can know that you are compassionate, that you love us and that you care for us. You're not indifferent to me. You're not indifferent to us. But you care deeply about us. You have compassion for us. God, we thank you that you are not an absent father but that you treasure us and love us. That you are proud of us simply because of who we are in you. That you love us as a parent, a good parent loves their child. God, would you make us, help us to just feel that reality today? To feel and know your love and your grace and your compassion. To feel and know and, and love your pride and and to feel you singing over us with joy. God, would you help us to feel and know who we are in you? And again, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you in this way, that doesn't know you as their everlasting Father, hasn't experienced your forgiveness and your grace and your promise of an eternity in heaven, God, would you open their eyes to their need, Lord, and may they surrender their lives to 
experience your grace today. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you loved us in our sin. That you gave all your life so that we could be forgiven. That maybe we may know you as our everlasting father. God, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace and your forgiveness. God, may we walk forward in that love uh, this week and today. In your name we pray, amen. <laughs> all right, I got a few uh, announcements for you today. Uh, first of all, you're new to Living Hope Church. There should be a welcome card somewhere in the area of you. If you don't mind filling that out and placing that in the wood box on the back table, we would appreciate it. Also, we can place your tithes and offerings if you consider this your church home. Youth group and kids night meet at the church here on Wednesday nights from 6 to 7. Uh, both are having their Christmas parties, and it'll be the last uh, meeting for, the, for this calendar year until January. Uh, so please uh, come and join us for that. Uh, giving tree or angel tree, if you had presents for that, they go in that classroom back there. I think most of you have already, uh, already found that. If you have questions about that, you can see uh, me. Kids choir will perform next uh, Sunday. Um, December 18th, during our morning uh, worship service. We would love for you to join us uh, for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, we have a budget meeting, even more fun. After this, if you'd like to join us, uh, we'll just meet up here in like five, ten minutes, and we will talk through the budget and answer any questions that you have about that. Uh, but yeah, there's also budgets on that back table uh, if you'd like to see one. And then uh, lastly, we have Christmas Eve service, which will be on Christmas Eve at 6 o'clock. Uh, here at the church. Um, there are invitations that look like this on the back table. If you would like to invite a friend or a family member or a neighbor, please grab one of those and invite a friend. Uh, Christmas Eve is a easy time to invite someone to come and join you for church. So those are on that back table. If you got questions, uh, come and let me know. Uh, Christmas Day, we've talked about this, it lands on a Sunday this year. Uh, on that Sunday, the church will be open, the heat will be on, Christmas carols will be going on the TVs, uh, but there will not be a regular service. It's just a time that you can come and hang out and reflect. Uh, I'll be here to talk if you'd like to talk to somebody, um, but just so you know, it won't be a normal service, but the church will be open and available if you would like to come. Uh, if you've got questions about that, you can come talk to me as well. So thank you so much uh, for being here today as we study Jesus, our everlasting Father. We pray and hope you have a great week, and we hope to see you again next week. You are dismissed.